0: Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. The New Deal and An Honorable Profession just celebrated our second podcast anniversary. We've had so much fun bringing you the best of American leadership. If you haven't already, please check out some of our previous episodes with leading mayors, attorney generals, state legislators, and the thinkers shaping the future of the Democratic Party. Even in these difficult times, these folks keep me inspired about American politics, and I hope to do the same for you. Find out more at NewDealLeaders.org.
1: Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox-Bolton, CEO of The New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the leaders featured on this podcast. This episode continues a series we've been doing leading up to the 2020 election. Last week, we heard from Greg Schultz, a longtime Biden aide and senior strategist. And next week, our final pre-election episode will feature New Dealer, North Carolina Senator, Jay Chowdhury, talking about the election outlook in his critical state and how he's preparing for what comes after November 3rd. But now, less than two weeks from election day, we dig into the state of the race up and down the ballot with Joel Benenson. CEO of the Benenson Strategy Group. Best known for heading up polling and research for President Obama in 2008 and 2012, Joel's the only Democratic pollster in history to have played a leading role in three winning presidential campaigns. We loved having his insight heading down the home stretch. I asked Joel about how strong Vice President Biden's position is, what key demographic groups are saying, and after 2016, whether we should even trust polls at all. And after my conversation with Joel, you'll hear from three New Deal leaders in battleground states, Georgia, Arizona, and Colorado, states that will help determine control of the White House and the U.S. Senate. Note that these interviews were recorded last week during a New Deal Live virtual event. Joel, welcome back to the New Deal. Thank you and Thank let you me we're absolutely and let me just start with kind of a, a first uh, real broad question which is you know just what I pose to the congressman just in general how are you feeling about Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris's chances um, heading into the home stretch
2: well the way I think think about these things heading into the home stretch is who would you rather be Biden or Trump and I think right now I would much rather be Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, uh, than Donald Trump. Uh, the reason for that is in a home stretch, you want to be able to be on offense, not defense. And right now, I think Joe Biden is looking strong in three states that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. A total of 77,000 votes uh, across those three states. And 660,000 uh, people in those three states voted third party. So right now, Joe Biden is leading in those states uh, by six or seven points at the moment. He's also pretty competitive in states where Trump won in 2017. So he can expand the map, stay on offense, whereas the Trump people have to play on defense, have to preserve their map plus some. And those two states are states like Arizona and North Carolina, which right now are very close. And of course, most importantly, Florida, where uh, uh, polling shows Biden with a lead of about three and a half, three point seven 3.7 points. It's really hard to see how Trump wins if he doesn't win Florida. So uh, I'm not feeling overconfident. I was burned badly um, in uh, two, uh, 2016. Um, but uh, the last piece I would share with you is I've looked at the last 10 national polls right now, popular vote polls, and Biden is polling over 50 percent in nine out of 10 of those polls. And Trump hasn't been above 43% in any one of them. So um, I am cautiously optimistic. Uh, We're playing the kind of hand you want to be playing here in the last two to three weeks of an election.
1: Joel, you, met, you kind of alluded to this about 2016, but let me let me ask that question, which is, I think so many of us are worried about the polls because we know what happened in 2016, and we lost all our credibility with our friends that we work in politics, and we told them Trump would never win, and um, so my question to you, particularly in the Midwest, I think some of the polling showed um, things that you know, didn't work out the way that they ended up working out. What do you tell people who are skeptical about the polling this year um, that might be different from then?
2: Yeah, I, I, I've said this for a long time, by the way, for about the last two years. The fact is the polls weren't wrong in 2016. If you look at the battleground state polls, which is what determines the electoral college, the trend line in those polls in Pennsylvania and Michigan in the last uh, three weeks of the campaign were steadily down for Hillary Clinton, precipitously down. If you're a pollster and you're watching those numbers, that's what puts shockwaves down your spine because it's terrifying. Uh, Wisconsin moved a little bit later, it was the last week. The national polls had Hillary Clinton winning by an average of 2.2%, which is exactly what she won the popular vote by. So, you know, you never wanna just hang your hat on the top line numbers, you gotta look at underlying dynamics. But I think why people confuse, what what they confuse is that you have, you know, the best known forecaster in America, Nate Silver, saying in the last week of the election, Hillary Clinton had a 78% probability of winning. Um, well, Joe and I both grew up not far from you know, Belmont Park and Aqueduct. If you were a horse player and somebody told you this horse had a 78% chance of winning, you'd be betting your farm on that horse. And so you know, the forecasting is what's problematic. People can relax. They can get complacent. I think because of 2016, no voter is going to be complacent.
1: Yeah i'm curious about you know this is it feels like there are so few um rightfully so undecided voters this time um so i'm curious about you know are there things that are still going to move the needle at this point Uh, you know issues um whether it's covid response or others or really is this is this are are voters pretty much where they're going to be or and who are those undecided voters if there really are any if there really are any
2: yeah. I mean, the pool of undecided voters is shrinking. You're right. I mean, this has been a pretty polarizing election. and um, But, you know, at the end of the day, I have a mantra about uh, presidential campaigns that I've used based on my experience. They're about big things, not small things. They're about the future, not the past. And they're about their lives, not your life. And that doesn't mean the candidate's bio, your life doesn't matter. But it's ultimately about their lives and certainly the overshadowing issue. That we have faced here over a significant period of time is coronavirus. And what we see, you know, it is by far the main issue. It's not isolated, it's connected to people's economic lives. Uh, a recent poll from Fox News, and by the way, I should say, Fox News has among the best polling of any media outlet in America. It is straightforward, it is on the mark repeatedly. Um, you know, their they're right now only one out of three voters are rating the economy only excellent or good. That's a consequence of the coronavirus. And so the more Trump talks about how great he is with the economic uh, uh, situation uh, and dealing with economics, it doesn't jibe with how voters are feeling right now in their own lives. The number of layoffs, the number of people out of work, number of stores that are closing in their community. So I think it's really exposed um, a, a weakness in Trump And I think the last thing I would say, and um, it goes back. And again, this is a Fox News poll. And I think we haven't talked enough about Joe Biden's message about restoring decency and respect. And I think post-debate, we've seen Trump's numbers go down. He put right out front there the kind of odious, obnoxious character he can be when he had the biggest TV audience he was gonna have. And back in June, Uh, Fox asked the poll about which candidate did each of them, do they have the empathy and compassion necessary to be president? And Donald Trump's numbers were about 14 points, what we say underwater, more negative than positive. And it was the inverse of that for Joe Biden. And I think this notion in this environment, where we've had over about a quarter of a million people die, having a president who is talking about restoring decency and respect among one another, You know, he's got a strong hand he's playing here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about some of the specific demographic groups uh, and how they supported Trump in the past and and what might be happening with them, I was really interested in this kind of news being made this week about older voters uh, trending away from Trump. I wonder if that goes to what you were just talking about, kind of about that that character and respect and civility. Um, You know, are you actually seeing that in the polls? And, And if so, what do you attribute it to?
2: Yeah, well, we we recently did a poll in partnership with a Republican firm uh, for AARP on voters over 50, and we did it in six battleground states. Um, We are seeing it. I mean, this is a group that, you know, is vulnerable to coronavirus. The the medical experts have told us that. And I think it does show weakness with uh, President Trump over 50. Uh, In the six battleground states, we polled um, uh, a majority in every state except one. Uh, was Florida, a majority disapproved of Trump's handling of coronavirus. And, um, you know, in Florida, it was a narrow approval just by a couple of points. So, you know, I think when you you look at this group, um, it is a group that has known Joe Biden for a long time. It is a group that I think is uh, more offended by some of the more outrageous things Donald Trump has said and done. And that's across demographics, white, people of color. Um, and so I think that um, I, while I, I don't know that we're seeing a gray revolt, um, you know, I do think about the fact that, you know, th- this was an age group that, that Donald Trump carried uh, last time, um, and he looks very vulnerable with these voters right now.
1: Are, following up on that, Joel, are there other groups that you're looking at specifically that you're seeing move in numbers that are noteworthy, maybe suburban women or anything else you would highlight?
2: Yeah. Um, the group that jumped out at me back in June, um, and this was, you know, we're, we're in the midst of COVID. We've had the George Floyd incidents. We've had Black Lives Matter protests, et cetera. And then you've had the, the counter protests going on. And the group that jumped out at me in June, it was startling, uh, was suburban voters, where um, and not just suburban women. It was suburban voters overall, but, but big numbers among suburban women who uh, by about a 32 point margin uh, said Trump didn't care about people like them. And I have to say that right now, Biden's lead in the latest Fox News poll um, is almost 20 points among suburban voters. And the thing about that that's so stunning is in 2016, And keep in mind, suburban voters, when you think of geography, it's the largest voting block. 49% of the electorate in presidential elections say they live in suburban areas. That's more than either urban or rural on their own, of course, right? But Donald Trump won those voters by four points, and they make up uh, 49% of the electorate. You're down 20 points with that group. It is hard to see how you carve a path to victory, particularly... In some of those battleground states we're talking about, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin all have industrial economics uh, economies uh, as well as agriculture, but they've got large suburban areas. And that's where we kind of lost them uh, in 2016. And I think that group, I'd say, you know, they're not, you know, they don't have a moniker like uh, soccer moms do, but uh, overall it shows a real vulnerability um, with Trump.
1: Yeah. And and what about young voters, too, Joel? I know every year we talk about every cycle, we talk about what's going to happen with younger voters. Um, What's your instinct on how they turn out and if they do turn out, you know, how they're going to vote?
2: Well, 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 I'll tell you, one of the best indicators I can give you is that I did a, a presentation, I remember, after the midterms in 2018 to a group of leaders in New York City. And one of the things that struck us is that the so-called Obama coalition, the group of voters in that age cohort, who people said, oh, yeah, they turned out for Obama, but will they ever turn out again? Well, they turned out in 2018, and Democrats won you know the national congressional vote by about eight points and obviously picked up a slew of seats. Um, those voters uh, in all the polling I see are still very much engaged. Um, they see the stakes as being very high. the other thing, they're very values-oriented voters. You know, they are, you're talking about people who are millennials and Gen Z. These are the most diverse generations we've had in our history in terms of uh, ethnic groups, in terms of race, in terms of faith, in terms of tolerance of others. Uh, They were the biggest supporters of, of making gay marriage legal back during that fight before it became legal. And they are staying active. And um, I think that's a real problem for Republicans. I think they have been inattentive to these groups. I think they've alienated them um, on the values front. Um, And I think they're going to, you know, they show out when the stakes are high. And I think what my friend Joe said earlier, I think voters see the stakes as very high in this election.
1: Yeah, as well, as well we all should. I know. Um, I'm getting a couple questions from audience members. I'd like to go to a little bit. One is um, asking: if, Is there a danger that we might see an outside force? Uh, they're noting like the Comey letter from 2016 uh, that would come in to help Trump at the end. Are there things that that might that we're not thinking of yet that might uh, impact this?
2: Well, um, it's a great question. Um, uh, I think that, uh, look, anything is possible after that, but I think if you look at what's happening in the, what, you know, if you read about the theories of bureaucracy in America, the permanent bureaucracy, I think we're seeing as many people who were burned by attempts to politicize these agencies. We're seeing it at, you know, um, uh, CDC, we're seeing it in the FBI, we're seeing it among former law enforcement, former military people. Um, I, I think there are professionals in the government who are going to do everything they can to stop any kind of political manipulations like that. Uh, I'm not saying Comey's was driven by a political manipulation, but I think I think they're all going to have their, their, um, their guardrails up and their tentacles out to uh, nip those in the bud. Um, that doesn't mean that Trump and his allies won't be pushing them. They've shown a complete disdain for democratic norms. Um, you know, and I want to make one comment, if I can, just as a little footnote on this comment about something that Joe said, not to disagree with him. This isn't just Donald Trump. The Republican Party has been complicit in everything Donald Trump has done. And there's a great book about authoritarianism called How Democracies Die, written by two political scientists. And one of the things they say in there of all the other things that map to Donald Trump's worst behaviors, the biggest ingredient uh, that is common or, or dynamic, I should say that is common to authoritarians taking over the government is the gatekeepers failed mm. and right now the Republican party should have been gatekeepers on this guy they failed in two thousand and sixteen and they have failed throughout his his first term yeah
1: yeah, absolutely actually that 's a great segue we 're getting a handful of questions about kind of this unusual dynamic to your point about um, you know the election undermining of the election and democracy itself. So let me go to a couple of those. Um, One person's asking, what's your sense of um, how we should be talking about the election results, particularly if they're not going to come election night as people are used to. And that being, um, you know, an opening for people to talk about a, a fraudulent or a, you know, election, how, how are you talking about, or how do you think we should be talking about expecting results, um, a little bit later and to make sure they all count?
2: Yeah, I think it's going to take a little bit of time until we can really strategize about how we should think about it and be realistic about it. Um, You know, people were waiting online in Georgia five hours to vote early the other day. There's a lot of early voting. Um, Some states start counting before election day. Some don't, they count on election day. Um, But obviously there's gonna be a lot of media attention on any illegitimacy that occurs between now and election day. Um, The, um, you know, if this is a tight race, we didn't know on election day in 2000 who won. Um, The bigger concern is really going to be whether the Republican Party, again, will uh, assume that role of gatekeeper and take the side of democracy and make sure every vote is counted. Or will they go in the tank for Donald Trump and start, you know, uh, echoing his claims about non-existent voter fraud? It doesn't happen. We all know it doesn't happen. Um, So, yeah, we're going to have to be vigilant. Um, But... um, you know, uh, I, I think this falls a lot on the states, not on the federal government. So the one good thing we have here is that there are public officials who aren't under the thumb of Donald Trump and his allies. And um, those people have reputations they're going to have to live by going forward.
1: Yeah, st- absolutely. Stay, staying on that, Joel, do, you know, we are seeing this high turnout. You mentioned George; We're seeing it across other states as well. Um, you know, what do you, th- do you think, I'm just curious, Do you do you think that some of that the messaging about on both sides, right? Uh, but Democrats have been really great about this, of, you know, vote early, make a plan, you know, all do you think that that, um, you know, we're seeing record turnout? So what do you just think of in terms of messaging as a pollster, um, you know, what, how's that going to impact the race? And, you know, is that going to, st- do you think we're going to see it staying so hot, you know, the enthusiasm of Democrats outpacing the Republicans all the way through election day, or is it hard to tell at this point?
2: Well, you know, I think in 2016, I don't think voters fully appreciated, even though we had a pretty high turnout. I don't think voters fully appreciated how high the stakes were. You had two candidates who had historically high unfavorable ratings, both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton throughout the campaign, had unfavorable ratings here in the uh, mid-50s, 55 to 57, unfavorable, unprecedented. Um, you know, I, I think what you have here are very high stakes. Um, I think every polling question I look at that, you know, gets at this, Um, you know, at one point people were saying, well, you know, Donald Trump's voters are more voted to vote for him. And Joe Biden's voters are more enthusiastic to vote for Donald Trump, uh, vote against Donald Trump. And that's a real problem for Biden. And I will tell you something that um, I don't want to use the word hate, but when you carry those strong uh, negative uh, sentiments towards someone, those can be more powerful voters than when you think, oh, these two people are the same. I think what that reflects a tremendous antipathy towards Donald Trump, uh, a belief by a majority of Americans that he is unfit to be president, just like I pointed out on that question about empathy and compassion. That's a strong voter, uh, motivator to vote. Uh, I think people are not going to take this lightly. And I think any who did in 2016 um, uh, are going to say, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, uh, shame on, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, I think we're going to have a pretty big turnout here.
1: Yeah. And to that point, on staying on that point, do you ask this to Matt Bennett when he was with us last week, talking about uh, election shenanigans? And you know, I asked the same question. I'll, I'll ask to you, which is, do you think that there's a margin, either nationally or a state by state, if we, you know, if, if Biden wins a couple states handedly, where um, it's just impossible to then, uh, you know, have those election, uh, you know. To try to, to try to take back claw back the election if you're Trump is there is there a margin by which it's just like th- there's nothing that that can be done on his side. Well,
2: you know, I, I think if it's really clear on election night, I think I think networks are going to be uh, cautious about forecasting. Um, but um, I don't think there's a particular margin. But obviously, you know, uh, in, in the old days, uh, a landslide was if you you know won by ten points or more. You know I think if you are uh, at a number here where any kind of recount is not going to change an outcome, and that 's anything probably in the in over three points but certainly over five points but three point wins are not going to be reversed in recounts um, i mean i 'm sure Joe agrees with that rarely um, and, and in fact, in most states with a three point win, you probably wouldn 't have a recount but um, Uh, so, uh, I I think what we're looking back here, if this is, if the, if the results turn out to be as polarized as the election has been polarizing, largely because of Donald Trump, um, we, we may well know on election night, the biggest barrier will be the counting of mail-in ballots. Um, now some states start counting them before election day, uh, but others don't. So that could slow things down, um, if there are states in doubt on, on that night of November 3rd.
1: Yeah, going back to our conversation about how to message that we'll be looking to you later for messaging about how to what expectations should be by the public, I think, and how to manage that. Um, we had a question come in back on some of the demographics. I'd like to get to it's an interesting one about the military vote that someone said they'd read, reading a Time magazine article that mentioned that Trump's losing military vote to Biden. And he was wondering whether you were seeing that as well.
2: Um, I, you know, in the polling that I've looked at and I've seen, I haven't seen military vote broken out as a demographic group on its own. Um, the one thing that we can do is, uh, is uh, I could have people, you know, you'd have to get people to ask that question going forward. The campaign may be asking it, uh, but I haven't in, in the polling I've done. Um, but it is an important voting block. It wouldn't surprise me, um, given, you know, the vast array of insults that Trump has cast that are uh, military leaders and the other disparaging statements he's made about them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to turn a little bit to um, kind of what else, how the things flow from the presidential race, right? And so someone's, I'll start with somebody who asked a question here about how do you see the presidential race impacting down ballot races, particularly for the Senate and the House?
2: Yeah, well, I, I will say this, that um, I've never been a believer, and and was once, you know, leader of DCCC. I'd never been a great believer in the generic congressional ballot until 2018, which I looked at. um, uh, I was doing a bunch of panels in the fall, and I looked at that generic ballot, and I saw that um, from Labor Day through Election Day, it barely budges, whether it's six, five, eight, and so I think on the congressional races, you know, they have a bit of a, 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 their, you know, I, I don't think coattails exist as much as they used to. The ability of local candidates to compete and the amount of money going into these even house races right now, you know, Democrats, I think, are going to pick up three suburban districts outside of Houston in Texas. Um, I, I think even in the face of gerrymandering, we, we picked up a lot of seats in 2018 against the gerrymandering that the Republicans were able to implement um, after um, 2010. Um, but um, w- winning winning these down-ballot races is gonna be particularly important here if we can win, not just congressional seats, but if we can win um, one house of a state legislature, or the governor's seat in states, then we get a hand in reapportionment that will roll back the extreme racially biased gerrymandering that Republicans have engaged in. Um, And right now that generic ballot is still hovering at about six to eight points. And I will say because of the gerrymandering, we need to win the the generic ballot typically by more than six points, six points or more, to be able to pick up more seats. And we picked up a lot of the low-hanging fruit in 18, but we also picked up governor's races and state legislatures. So I am cautiously optimistic that with the weakness at the top of the ticket, that a lot of those suburban voters who were repulsed by Trump um, uh, will also feel a bit repulsed at their own Republican Party and put in more Democrats, especially where we've got women and people of color on the ballot.
1: Yeah. When it comes to the Senate specifically, Joel, are you, what's what adjective would you use to, uh, to describe your your optimism about flipping the Senate?
2: Well, we've got two scenarios. Remember, we need um, um, to win three seats if Joe Biden wins the presidency. We need four seats if, um, if Trump is reelected. So, um, you know, right now, in terms of looking at these seats, I think we've got a couple that look really solid and some in surprising states. So, Um, let's say if Biden wins, we need three seats. So right now we've got Cal Cunningham, um, who in North Carolina is consistently holding a four to six point lead over Tom Tillis. We also have in Maine, um, Sarah Gideon has also been leading Susan Collins by about three to five points. And I actually think that the Amy Barrett hearings is gonna hurt Susan Collins more than help her. I think she's gonna vote to confirm. She's already said she would. Um, And I think that's the second seat. Um, The third seat where we get to in in the case of a Biden win um, is probably John Hickenlooper beating Cory Gardner in Colorado. He has led uh, uh, pretty consistently there. Um, And if there are two seats that I would say, I don't want to call them long shots, but they would have started these races as underdogs that give us an opportunity for pickups. It is uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, who I think is going to win that seat over Martha McSally. Um, So that gives us a little margin fairer, but I also think right now Teresa Greenfield has made gains over Joni Ernst. If I go out on a limb here and talk about one real long shot in the field, um, what I would say is it might be Barbara Bollier in Kansas. I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about the state of Kansas, it's a state that has elected more women governors than any other state in the union. Um, I bet if you did a show of hands on the Zoom, we wouldn't have a majority of people who knew that fact. I didn't know it until about a year ago when I was having a conversation with one of those former governors, Kathleen Sebelius. So, um, you know, again, I'd rather be playing our hand and on our field than the Republican field right now. But that difference between three and four seat pickup is a big one for us.
1: I think emotionally people would be mad at me if I didn't ask you uh, about Lindsey Graham just because it's, um, you know, we loved those fundraising numbers for Jamie Harrison this week. So any chance you think Lindsey Graham is vulnerable? (laughs) Um,
2: There may be some. I mean, the polling there has been pretty close. The fundraising numbers show, um, you know, a lot of support. What I haven't seen is a breakdown of how many of those are in-state and out-of-state, but it certainly gives him money to communicate and, and contact voters in a way Um, that, uh, that is important. Um, nothing in the hearings that I saw yesterday makes me think Lindsey Graham, uh, uh, cares about that money and where they are. Um, that's been close, but it's, it's been a little up and down. That would be, uh, if we win that seat, we're having a really big night. And that's not to say Jamie can't win that seat, but, you know, on the spectrum, that is the reddest of the red seats we're competing for right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. And on the House side, you mentioned the three uh, Houston seats that you're optimistic about picking up. I mean, do you have a, a sense of, um, you know, how much you think that it's possible to expand the, um, the majority in the House?
2: Well, I do. And I think, you know, one of the things and I, I, I know Wendy Davis pretty well, who's running in one of those seats. And I, I know the state a bit because I worked on her governor's race. But one of the things that surprised me in Texas and, and Joe can speak to this, right? He uh, he. unfortunately, not unfortunately, but he, he, he encountered a forced retirement in the last election. You had in the state of Texas, Republicans who were in plus nine Republican districts, uh, uh, people like Kenny Marchant, that's the Wendy Davis district, decide to not run again. You have people like uh, Will Hurd, a rising star in the Republican Party of Texas, probably one of their um, uh, truly rising African-American stars as you will, decides not to run again. You know, Joe knows this. Incumbents in Congress don't decide not to run for no reason. So when you get Republicans in a state like Texas um, deciding not to run again, I think that would be a real um, a flashing light and a real warning light for the Republican Party um, that they're they're having some real growth problems in states um, that if they ever shift and become swing states, and and you know we've been trying to turn Texas blue for you know ten years. Um, but this looks like uh, Republicans there are waking up to the fact that that state is changing, um, and that's going to create more problems for Republicans holding Congress, um, and then ultimately um, the Senate as well.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating to be talking about Texas and Georgia and some of the states with Kansas, yeah. as you mentioned. Uh, yes. that's that does uh, that's that's hopeful. Um, to along those lines, somebody's asking about kind of if if you had a. Um, suggestions on, you know, those states that, that, that could benefit most from late volunteers, money, whatever it is, you know, do you have a couple states that you would pick that uh, you would encourage people to take a good look at?
2: Um, well, for, in terms of the presidential?
1: Yeah, let's go. Yeah. let's Or maybe you can answer both presidential or Senate. Yeah.
2: Well, maybe. look, I, I think for the presidential, Florida would be a big one on my list. I think if, if Donald Trump loses Florida, uh, as I said earlier, his map, becomes not, I won't say impossible, but almost impossible. Um, uh, I think uh, I would definitely um, add uh, Wisconsin to that list. Um, I would add Arizona and North Carolina. Again, some of those states are states that if we pull them out from the map Trump won with, um, it shrinks because he has no expansion potential. Um, you know, he's not going to win a Colorado. He's not, he may win a Nevada. That would be another one. Nevada is looking tighter than I would be comfortable with. So um, that might be one where volunteering would help. But, you know, Trump isn't going to win New York. I think he's got an uphill climb in Pennsylvania and Michigan um, right now. Um, but those are some of the ones I would say for volunteer purposes. They may, they're, they're also probably right for volunteers because they're, they're not the big magnet states that people always hear about with the exception of Florida. Which can always use more. And if you have extra time, Texas.
1: I love it. Some of those congressional
2: races in Texas.
1: I love it. Um, someone's asking a little bit, thinking beyond the election and, um, you know, the swings that happen, the Republicans snapping back the gains that followed their, their wins um, in 94 and 2010. Uh, anything, I know we're kind of all focused on November 3rd, rightfully so at this point, but anything you're thinking about longer term in terms of um, ensuring that those gains are consolidated if they happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you, you you've got to be vigilant, and I think um, I think if the Biden camp gets in, um, you know, uh, like you say, those midterm collect, uh, elections, you know, they're not they're not a correction in a sense, but they are a check. They want to remind, particularly when someone has won big, you know, Barack Obama is the only, only the seventh president in history to get elected and reelected with 50% or more of the vote. Think about that. We think we have majority rule in this country. Only seven have been both elected and reelected by 50% of the vote. And you, you've got so much on your plate that you, um, you know, you can get complacent because you want to get your policy agenda done. I think as a party, and I think uh, Vice President Biden, who saw what happened in 2010, firsthand. If he's elected president, I think he and his team are going to know that we have to stay especially vigilant in the uh, 2022 uh, uh, cycle, um, especially if um, you know, we don't make the gains at the state legislature level to do better with reapportionment, where we can roll back some of that extreme gerrymandering that's taking place.
1: As we, um, as we think about the next three weeks, Joel, what, what are you going to be paying most attention to in terms of any shifting numbers or what should we be watching, um, watching going forward?
2: Well, I, I, think, um, I think I would watch most closely those three battleground states that I mentioned, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, you know, Wisconsin probably has more of a red streak uh, than, uh, than Michigan or Pennsylvania. But again, if we put those back in our camp, um, it it really, really narrows the path for Trump to get to 270 electoral votes. So, um, I, I pay close attention to those battleground states. They've tightened up a little bit, um, but Biden's lead in all those states is still, um, you know, I won't say comfortable, but it is in the, the mid to, Slightly higher single digits. I'm a little more sanguine about Pennsylvania than Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, but remember, we're three weeks out, and I talked about that three-week trend line that went down like this uh, for Hillary. So those are the states I'm going to watch again. If we stay in this range, you know, going into Election Day, if if we don't tighten up, if we're in a uh, kind of mid to upper single-digit range, um, those will be very reassuring. If they start tightening down to you know three, two one and a half point range, I'd be worried.
1: Yeah. Well, I just thank you so much for being with us today. We're going to um, pick up on some of the states that you mentioned you name check. So we've got people from uh, Arizona, Georgia and Colorado with us to tell us what they're hearing on the ground. Um, but again, I just Joel, thanks for coming back to be with New Deal. Your insights are always so spot on. And um, I think you've given us all a little bit of hope, but we know that we're not going to take our foot off the gas uh, <laughs> headed into the, to November 3rd. So thank you so much. Maybe we can have you back afterwards and we can deconstruct what happened and where we go from here.
2: Definitely. Always happy to do it. Thanks Thank so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, again, we're, we wanted to kind of wrap up this special uh, event segment with um, getting a view on the ground from a few of the states that Joel talked about of being in play for different reasons. Um, so really appreciate New Deal leaders um, being with us for that. We've got uh, Frankie Heredia from Arizona. Uh, Jen Jordan from Georgia and Carrie Donovan from Colorado. Um, really happy to appreciate you all being here. Um, I think maybe just because Georgia's on my mind. A, it's a song I think, but B, um, B uh, with the the long lines, Jen. This week in Georgia, certainly um, on everybody's mind about what's happening. Love to hear from you about about that situation and um, and and what you're seeing on the ground and also how you're feeling about the presidential and your and your two Senate races um, there in your state. Yeah, um, thank y'all for having me. Um,
3: So things are crazy here. People are voting. Um, They're getting out. The lines are out of control. Um, I thought that yesterday may be a fluke because it was Columbus Day. So a lot of folks were off from work and it was the first day of early voting. Um, But the same issues in terms of lines um, today. So I think we're going to kind of see how it, it rolls out a little bit. Um, The good thing is, is that Fulton County, the largest county, isn't having problems. Um, They have State Farm Arena that the Hawks have opened up and they have like, um, I think they've got 300 voting machines there um, and the Hawks have basically provided their staff to do, to serve as poll workers. Um, So it's just an incredible thing they've done. So Fulton County is kind of going along. Um, We're looking at Cobb County and we're looking at Gwinnett and DeKalb. And specifically in Gwinnett, you know, we've got a congressional race, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, which I think we're going to pick up that seat. Um, And then the two U.S. Senate seats are what is on everybody's mind. I'll tell you the biggest issue with Georgia is that we have a 50 plus one requirement um, that the Republicans put into place um, when the state flipped. And um, it's hurt us in the past because we can be the, the number one vote getter, but Democrats have not done well in the state in terms of runoffs of coming back out. Um, So that is really what everybody's keeping their eye on. At this point, um, I I think that the Ossoff-Purdue race is gonna head to a runoff. And then of course the special will because we've got 21 Democrats and about seven Republicans listed on that ballot. Um, But overall people are incredibly excited. Um, Biden is lifting up um, down ballot Um, candidates, which is incredibly helpful for us. And we actually may have an opportunity to flip the Georgia State House, which is, if you would have told me that two years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, So there have been some good things to come out of the Trump era. And one of them
1: is uh, revitalizing the Democratic Party in the state of Georgia. So That's so fantastic, Senator. Um, And I'm curious about the, so you know, you mentioned the Biden- lifting folks up. Do you think it's feasible that Biden wins Georgia?
3: He could. Um, I think it's all going to depend on turnout. Um, Every poll is within the, um, you know, the margin of error. The issue is people are looking at likely voters and you know how pollsters look at that based on vote history. Um, But the issue for us is that we had so many voters that had never voted in a primary before or an election come out in this past primary. And even since 2016, we have added an additional million voters to our um, voter, um, you know, roles. So, you know, who knows if they're talking to the right people or not. Um, As we know, especially younger people, they tend not to be reachable because they don't have landlines. Um, So it all depends on kind of, you know, how you're reaching out. Um, But I definitely think it's doable. And the fact that Joe just put in four million in advertising this week indicates that he thinks it's doable. Um, Dr. Biden was here yesterday and Trump is coming Friday. Um, So we know that he knows that that Georgia you know, is in play um, for him to be showing up the way he's showing up.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting. Who would, who would have thought we'd be talking about Georgia at this right. stage? It's Yay! yeah, it's super exciting. Maybe one last question for you, Jen. Um, uh, you know, you guys have also been ground zero. I mean, obviously, we're seeing the lines and the suppression um, there in that in terms of. Uh, access to, to voting booths, but you also, we had the Stacey Abrams race, New Deal leader, you know, and uh, so much of, so you guys have really been on the front lines of kind of this counting votes. And that was something we talked about earlier with Joel a little bit, but you know, how can, are you at all concerned about kind of the integrity election in Georgia or, you know, is there anything being done to kind of just make sure that that it's it's going to be a fair um, and, you know, fair, fair count at the end? We're doing everything we can to make sure that
3: things are, um, going as well as we can hope that they will, especially in the large Democratic areas. Um, Fulton County has really stepped up. We even have a mobile voting um, kind of van that's going around and just doing pop-up voting all around the county. Um, So we're pushing, what we're telling people though, is not to wait to the last minute, especially even if they do absentee, because if they get their absentee in and there's a problem, um, then they have the opportunity to cure it and have the time to do that. So we're telling folks get out and vote early Vote as early as you can, so we can bank those votes. Um, and then if you're going to do an absentee ballot, get it in so that if there's a problem, you know, we can help with that. We've got voter protection lines, we've got lawyers, we've got poll watchers all over the place. So I think we learned a lot from 2018 that the margins are going to be really, really close. And so, um, suppression really can swing an election and, um, And I don't think anybody wants that to happen, especially um, with Trump at the top of the ticket.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. That's good advice for Georgians, but for everybody to vote early, uh, you know, and get out there and do it as soon as you can. So thank you so much, Jen, for that look from Georgia. I'd love to bring in uh, Frankie Heredia, um, city council member from Mesa, Arizona, New Deal leader. So nice to see you. Thanks for being with us. Um, Hi, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for being here. Joel mentioned um, name checked your Senate race. Uh, Mark Kelly was looking really strong. Tell us what you're seeing on the ground in Arizona.
4: Yeah, no, uh, you know, the early voting has started in Arizona last week. Uh, it's uh, over the last decade, uh, Arizona has moved into more of a mail in voting uh, uh, program. Uh, millions of voters have, have signed up for the permanent absentee balloting. Uh, and so, that last week was sent out to millions of voters, and people are 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 voting. Uh, also, in the two largest counties, uh, Maricopa County uh, and Pima County, where about seventy percent of all voters in Arizona are, uh, those uh, those county recorders have set up uh, like in Georgia, uh, voting voting centers and and just uh, more access to to drop off their ballots and. Uh, more access to uh, go in uh, and vote at these voting centers. So, uh, and that has, uh, you know, has resulted in some lines, uh, not not like in, in other states right now, but I think what we will see is more more individuals voting by mail uh, sooner than later. And uh, in, in, uh, that has an, an effect in the, the U.S. Senate race, which Mark Kelly versus Mark the McSally, this is the old John McCain seat, uh, where McSally uh, was appointed by the governor right after her losing to now Senator uh, Kristen Sinema. Um, and so this is to, again, to fill in uh, the old John McCain seat. And what we've seen over the last year and a half is a consistent lead by Mark Kelly, uh, whose his bio is just tremendous, uh, a, a former astronaut. Uh, he's a, a husband of uh, former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords who was shot uh, in 2011 in Arizona. And uh, he's just been raising tons of money uh, over the last year and a half. And has been steady on the polls uh, from five to 12 points in Arizona, which I, I think that Senate race, he's, he's really propelling the, the presidential race uh, in, in Arizona, uh, uh, where Biden now in the last several polls is uh, just above the margin error, but around four to five percent. Uh, four to five points uh, to, uh, from Trump, who Trump won by three and a half points in uh, 2016 uh, against Hillary Clinton.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I think Mark Kelly is such a great candidate. I'm really optimistic about that race. Thanks for kind of getting into the, to the details of that for us. We have a, actually a question for you from the audience, um, Frankie, that I'd love to posed to you, Uh, one of your neighbors from um, New Mexico is asking about, uh, he said, is there any specific Hispanic Latino outreach um, that you're seeing that's been particularly effective on the ground in Arizona?
4: Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think that the major shifts that are happening over the last several years has been the demographic changes that Latinos are aging in uh, more and more into voting age. And that has uh, kind of catapulted in a much faster way uh at arizona being competitive i think latinos are leading that charge and when this year in addition i think the loss of support uh, of uh of republicans uh, especially uh, uh president trump in the suburbs uh has really affected uh republicans uh statewide and which has helped uh, uh vice president biden and also mark kelly so those two factors as far as latinos and the outreach has been going on mark kelly has invested Into uh, Latino outreach since early on uh, on Spanish language media, uh, hiring staff and and, uh, being out there in the community. What we're we're seeing in the last two and a half months, uh, the presidential campaign uh, of of Biden Harris investing in the same ways uh, in Latino outreach, and so that has been uh, has has affected uh, Latino turnout. And hopefully, uh, as we move forward towards you know, ongoing uh, vote by mail, which uh, a lot of Latinos have been signing up over the last five years, Uh, that will uh, result into more Latinos voting Uh, about, we're anticipating about 25% of vote share being Latinos uh, in 2020, which is tremendous from uh, 2016, which is about 17%, it's 17, 18%. So uh, that huge shift that Latinos are, are causing into the uh, electoral politics in, in, in Arizona is really resulting into uh, Arizona, again, being as competitive as we're seeing uh, uh, in in, uh, in this race.
1: That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Frankie. Thanks for being, uh, oh, actually real quick, last question for you. Someone's asking, yeah. is there a chance that the D's will take control of one or both of the chambers in your state legislature?
4: You know, what, what's happened is, uh, it's definitely the Senate race and the presidential race now being competitive has really pushed into these down ballot races uh, being more competitive. Right. So uh, the Senate, you, the state Senate is is about two seats out, uh, and then the state house is one seat from tying uh, Republicans. So uh, and so there is a, there's a distinct possibility that Democrats would take one or, or both houses or at least tie both houses uh, or take, take either one. So uh, there's, there's really push push up by uh, the statewide races uh, that is affecting the the down ballot races. Um, And and so we're really optimistic in seeing, uh, you know, that state house, which has been dominated by Republicans for over two and a half decades here in Arizona. Uh, And so uh, we're, we are seeing uh, the potential for that. In addition to, uh, you know, what's pushing up as well is this, uh, uh, education initiative, uh, which the Red for Ed movement has really pushed over the last several years in Arizona. That's having an effect in these on ballot races as well, as far as education playing a major role in the messaging part. So, uh, it's proposition 208, uh, that we're seeing, uh, definitely increase, uh, um, outreach and attention uh, to that messaging, which is allowing to have uh, uh, these uh, state ballot, uh, state races having an, uh, an effect here.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Frankie. Really appreciate you being with Thank us you. today and giving us the, the look on the ground from Arizona and batting cleanup for us. Senator from Colorado, Carrie Donovan. Carrie, it's so lovely to see you. I miss you
5: too. I miss you tons, and it's so nice to see so many names on the attendee list, so
1: thanks for having me Of today. course, of course. Again, your Senate race got name-checked as well, so uh, is Hick and Looper going to do this? How are you feeling?
5: Yeah, I think, um, it's, so the, the state of the race in Colorado, Colorado has seven congressional districts. That's um, made up of four Democrats and three Republicans. We're a male in state, have been since 2014. We have Day of Registration Um, we have the second highest turnout in the nation in terms of voter participation, but we're already seeing numbers outpacing 2016. So 50,000 people have already voted in Colorado. Um, and we've put in a lot of, um, even though, um, the mail-in ballot system was originally established by a Republican secretary of state, our current Democrat secretary of state is continuing to innovate. So we feel great about the election here. We have track your ballot by texting. You can cure your ballot by texting. So, really a friendly place to vote um and we expect turnout to be significant um what does that mean for hickenlooper hickenlooper of course was um small business owner he was the mayor of denver then he was governor of colorado served with a split chamber when he was governor so kind of has a real moderate um, reputation very very popular public official and with a name like hickenlooper you get really good name id so we're About his race. It has been remarkably stable. Um, Since he jumped in, the numbers have hovered in that, you know, six, seven, eight range of the gap between him and Senator Gardner. But stable in Colorado doesn't mean safe. We are very libertarian here. Um, People like to say that we're a blue state. We are definitely a libertarian state. And I think that's always important to think about politics in Colorado. Our ballot this year is huge. Um, I think up to three pages in some of the metro areas because of the number of other initiatives. Um, but we think that um, we're hopeful that that um, Governor Hickenlooper will secure this one. His last fundraising came in at 22.6 million, which shattered the previous record which he had established. So really good grassroots plus national support. Um, but like I said, stable isn't safe. Um, Senator Gardner was the chair of the NRCS for the last cycle. So Mitch McConnell was not backing down. The soft side, dark money is not backing down. Um, if you watch any sporting event in Colorado, it is solid Hick and Gardner commercials, um, for the entire period. So still a race that we can't take for granted, but I think, um, Biden will be successful in Colorado and Hickenlooper will be successful. And then we just really hope that we can flip the Senate um, so that, you know, Biden has the support of that chamber when he uh, hopefully gets sworn in in January, fingers crossed. So that's kind of the, the that's state of the state of Colorado.
1: Yeah. And Carrie, in our last minute here, just any last words you want to say about the presidential? Has it been pretty stable as well in Colorado?
5: It has been, we've been a pretty um, stable democratic voting state, Bernie won both primaries though. So again, when you think about that libertarian seat, um, you know, Biden is an interesting candidate um, uh, in that, you know, I think I think people were more in the, um, uh, um, more looking for a, a more progressive candidate in the early states, but I think with COVID, Colorado was hit really hard by COVID and early, and our numbers are actually starting to creep up. So I think people are going to look for a candidate like Biden. Proven leadership, that empathy, you know, all the things that the, the polls are showing are the same in Colorado. I also think that's why Hickenlooper ended up being a really good candidate for the moment. Proven leadership, uh, a track record of what he can do in economic crises and in um, and, and just challenging times. So I think we've got a really good. Ticket in Colorado and a really good voting system. And you bring those together, and we really hope that Democrats prevail up and down the ticket.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Carrie. I want to thank everybody. Thank Carrie and Jen and Frankie for joining us for this last segment, both uh, back again to, to Joel Benenson being with us and Congressman Crowley and to all of you who joined us for this uh, look out three weeks here about where we were around the country. We'll be reconvening uh, post-election to, to do both uh, with a, a, a post-election call, but also want to make sure that I remind you to mark your calendars for December 2nd through 4th, which will be our virtual uh, annual conference this year. And I think that's going to be a really great way to come together and talk about where we go from here and how to make sure that we make the most of all these gains we heard about today that are going to happen. So um, thank you all so much. It was great to see everyone. We're all going to stay, stay in solidarity for three more weeks, and we will look forward to regrouping after that. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces broadcasts, I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.